Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, April 22nd. Before I get to today's news, as well as our conversation with ITA CEO Tim Russell discussing his response to Dr. Stephen Dittmore's piece, more universities may need to eliminate sports, and that would be bad for the U.S. Olympic Committee, but should it matter? I have to let all of you guys know that today's podcast and every day's mini break podcasts are brought to you by our friends at Diadem Sports. And look, all of us are looking for that extra edge, that thing that will give us just that 1% increase in performance on the tennis court, get us that much better, that much more comfortable with our games. And we think here at Crack Rackets that Diadem Sports can help you do just that. They're helping players across the globe elevate their games by designing the most innovative performance tennis gear on the planet. Their rackets are developed with your performance in mind and have been carefully crafted for specific types of playing styles, whether your game commands power and explosiveness, precision and control, they'll have the best option to help take your game to the next level. It's not just the rackets. They've got five different sets of strings, all meant to accentuate different types of playing styles. They've got their premier tennis balls, drawstring bags, your one-stop shop, really, for all of your tennis needs. So, if you go to their website, diademsports.com. You're going to like what you see, and you're going to think, man, I wish I could get a discount. Well, I have good news for you. If you use our promo code CR50, you're going to get 50% off your order. All of your tennis needs fulfilled in one shopping trip, 50% off that order as well, all by going to diademsports.com. They have been so supportive of us here at Crack Rackets. The least we can do is ask you to go support them as well. So, diademsports.com. Use that promo code CR15. Now let's get to the news, and I do want to try and run through this fairly quickly because I think you all will really enjoy our conversation with ITA CEO Tim Russell. All of you know how much college tennis means to us here at Cracked Rackets. We love the sport. We think it's one of the most enjoyable forms of tennis out there. The camaraderie built between so many teammates, so many programs across the country, so many athletes are college tennis players at various Division One, Division Two, Division Three, NAIA schools, uh, and every level of college tennis is exciting. And of course, the coronavirus pandemic ravaging uh, college athletics this year. No NCAA tournament, potentially no football in the fall. The financial impact of those two things will be catastrophic. And of course, there has already been discussion of what's going to happen to the non-revenue sports, and I use that term pejoratively, but things like college tennis that aren't bringing in tons of money 
money and in, in, in some cases, many cases, losing money uh, for athletic programs. Now, I'm not saying it's, you know, they're not crushing these athletic programs with losses. They're not sacrificing other things just to have tennis teams. But there's going to be a lot of budget constraints coming out of this. And you certainly have, we've all heard, we've all heard discussed as well, uh, rumors of programs that might have to cut or that just will be too financially, you know, impacted by this. And they're not going to be able to field a tennis team. Uh, and so, you know, Tim Russell, the CEO of the ITA guy who's so well, you know, so polished, thinks about all of these issues at all times. Obviously, the pandemic brings a lot of the financial uh financial difficulties, I suppose, financial challenges is the better word uh, for the ITA to the forefront of people's mind. And after talking with Tim, it, it just becomes more and more clear that these are issues he was thinking about way before this, just trying to get college tennis in a place where it will be sustainable and will continue to thrive in the future. And there's no one I feel more confident in, you know, saving college tennis, we'll say, than Tim Russell. So it's a really fascinating conversation, always well thought out, always nuanced take and nuanced opinions from Tim. We always appreciate having him, uh, having the chance to speak with him as well. So we will get to that conversation as soon as we can. I do just did two and a half minutes on it, and I haven't even gotten to the news. That's a nice distraction for you. But let's get to the news now. And you know, again, speaking of the financial impact of the coronavirus pandemic in tennis, uh, we're hearing more and more about what the ATP and WTA tours are trying to do to offer some form of relief to the hundreds, if not thousands, of professional tennis players out there whose seasons have been wiped away. And particularly, as we've discussed at length, I'll just recap it quickly, it's not the top 50 players. It's, you know, yes, some in the top 100, particularly the young ones, but it's as you go further down the rankings at the financial impact, no challengers, no futures. The prize money wasn't great to begin with, but these players can't even supplement their incomes by teaching lessons in so many places right now because courts are closed. We're all quarantining. So the financial impact is severe. And we talked yesterday about the reports of what the ATP tour is trying to do. They're asking very, you know, they're trying to work somewhere at least a $4 million pot. They want to take bonuses from uh, the year-end tour. They want to take money from the ATP Tour Finals. They want to take Australian Open prize money as well, if necessary. And then they ask various players, depending on their level of ranking, to donate to a player relief fund. Uh, there was further developments today, and the I, the ATP, WTA, and ITF released a joint statement uh, discussing the plans that they have moving forward. They said, you know, with so much, um, I'll read that now, with so much uncertainty around when it will be safe to restart the professional tennis tours, the internet national governing bodies of world tennis can confirm they are in discussions to create a player relief program to provide much needed assistance to the players who are particularly affected during this time of coronavirus crisis. These discussions have been progressing well and details are being finalized with an announcement expected in the near future. Already agreed is that the ATP and WTA will administer the player relief program and all seven stakeholders will make a significant contribution. Now that's a bit of news. Again, what we had heard before it was going to be a lot of player based. It was a lot of going to be ATP based, not ATP and WTA or just WTA based, not both. And it's nice to hear that there's collaboration. There's a pooling of resources to do this. 
not only in the most helpful way, but in the most efficient way possible. And it's important to remember that, that yes, of course, we are worried about the immediate impact. We want to get relief to these players as soon as possible. But tennis's long-term future should also be considered in these moments. And what has this crisis exposed about the tour, about professional tennis? That is something that maybe needs to be corrected moving forward so that so many athletes aren't in a position like this again. And of course, you can never prepare for a once-in-a-lifetime type virus like the coronavirus pandemic, something that's impacted all of our lives in ways we probably could have never imagined beforehand, but that they are collaborating across tours and across, you know, non-player units, but across just, you know, uh, rankings lines and across gender lines and across singles versus doubles lines, all of these discrepancies, that's great to hear. And, of course, the statement goes on, the health and safety of everyone involved in tennis is the absolute priority for all the governing bodies, and the tennis community has been unwavering in playing its part in limiting the spread of the infection. This is particularly true of our players, with so many engaging their fans through messages of hope while reiterating the importance of staying safe at home, as well as demonstrating in creative ways to stay fit and practice our sport to be ready when the time comes that play can begin again. We know that for our players, as well as for so many people worldwide, there is the need for financial support for those who need it most, and we look forward to finalizing and sharing the further details of a plan in due course. And of course, this, again, message comes after Novak Djokovic had sort of leaked through John Wertheim and through a couple of other people's what the ATP financial plan was looking uh, to do. And of course, That makes this a little bit reactive, but they're on top of it. It's a day apart, and this isn't my theory. Uh, It comes from, you know, I like to text amongst the fellow tennis journalists here, the what's what, and someone asked, or someone made the point of, you know, why do you think all of these Instagram live chats have been coming? Why do we think all of these players are getting out there on social media? Is it organic, or does some of it serve a purpose? Is it sort of staged is too strong of a word, but are they trying to lay the groundwork to do something? You see Djokovic uh, leaking these little details, Federer, Nadal, all saying these different things, and a lot of things are coming, starting to come into shape. It feels coordinated. It feels like the ATP and WTA are doing a damn good job right now in the media war and trying. Media war is the wrong way, but handling this narrative and trying to be on top of it. And it's interesting now, of course, with so many moving pieces, so many moving parts. How do you make sure players don't get railroaded? How do you make sure everyone has a seat at the table to discuss what any future arrangements li- might look like? Well, you know, the follow up to that, and by the way. Again, Christopher Clary, who's been on top of this, says that, you know, the Grand Slams, WTA, HP, and ITF are trying to create a relief fund that's expected to amount to a little bit more than $6 million from president of the ITF, Dave Haggerty. It's taken us a little bit of time, but the good news is that we'll be addressing this in the right way. There's going to be fewer than 1,000 players who gets helped in the end, according to Clary. He's going to guess it's going to be around 800. And any money that the big three and the top 100 contribute voluntarily for now will be on top of the $6 million plus given by the governing body. So again, they're trying to still incorporate what Djokovic had suggested in terms of player relief, but they're trying to, at, at a minimum, gives, you know, uh, upwards of $6 million total to all of these players. Now, again, there are more than 800 players. And if you want to criticize that, you want to say, you know, why aren't the big three giving more? Well, A, they're still individuals too. And yeah, they have endorsement deals, but it, it's a lot of money. And, you know, they don't know when their next checks are going to come. They don't know how this is going to impact their professions. And so, you know, I, I it's a little unfair to say, well, they're only given $30,000. $30,000 is a lot of money. Now, 
if you want to say they should be doing more, that's your prerogative. I don't really want to argue with that position right now. I think doing, you know, let's start with the minimum. Let's get some sort of support out there. And then if it's clear more is needed, let's have that discussion as well. And yes, that's a little reactive. But at this point, we just need to have some form of relief for these players. And this is better. You know, this is showing they're trying to formulate a plan within the, 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 you know, the confines of what is possible. And, you know, $6 million, potentially more, that's a lot of money for a lot of players. More than, you know, that's enough. Not, that's not enough, but it's a start is what I wanted to say. So that's interesting. And again, to get back to the point, well, how do we make sure not, you know, no players are railroaded? Everyone has a seat at the table. The, IT, the ITF uh, on Tuesday announced the creation of the ITF World Tennis Tour Player Panel, and they say, you know, the panel will provide a forum for players to provide their input and have their say on how the tour is run and will be a further opportunity for the ITF to engage with the player community. Improving communications with players is an important part of the ITF 2024 strategy. The World Tennis Tour Player Panel is the most recent player panel to be formed with ITF player panels already in place to represent some athletes on the wheelchair chair tennis tour senior circuit and beach tennis tour the panel will advise and make recommendations to the itf world tennis tour committee which in turn reports to the itf board of directors men's and women's tennis player communities will each elect a panel of seven current player members to represent its interests together with an itf appointed chair and an itf appointed coach um, they had they said mark woodford the 17-time grand slam doubles champion will chair the men's tennis panel mary p Pierce, the former four-time Grand Slam champion and Fed Cup finalist player for France, will chair the women's tennis panel. Uh, in addition, they'll serve as athlete representatives <clears throat> on the ITF board of directors. They go on to say the player members will vote where voting is required to make recommendations. The chair, the coach are non-voting members in case you were concerned about that. Panel members will be nominated and elected by players who compete on the men's and women's ITF World Tennis Tour. Men's tennis players with an ATP singles or doubles rankings no higher than 351. Women's tennis players with a singles or doubles ranking no higher than 151 are eligible to nominate a fellow player or stand in the election. Further criteria has also been devised to ensure that players from all regions and at all ranking levels are suitably represented. And again, it, you know, there's there's more in the, the piece. There's quotes from Woodford and Pierce and quotes from Dave Haggerty, who says it is vital that players are represented at all levels of the sport and across the globe. By the way, the nomination period will open in May. The outcome of the elections expected to be announced in the week of June 15th. Elected member, members will serve a term until the end of the 2021 season and thereafter will sit for two-year terms. Once elected, the panel will meet at least tw- two times per year via video conference and again it's about broadening the representation in tennis what this shows me is we're getting closer and closer to the point where maybe one unified union or separate unions between the ATP and the WTA or just however separate entities they want to do they're trying to have players form a coherent voice and one thing that has always been lacking yes the highest rungs of the game the Fedders, the Djokovic's the Serena's they've always been well represented their interests have always been taken care of by the WTA ATP player councils and well you know justified because so much of their uh, so many of their results and their status and celebrity has raised the profile of tennis so of course they have an oversized stay uh, but this ensures that, that that no longer remains the case 
case that lower ranked players have some sort of formal mechanism uh, to negotiate, to uh, fight for the things they need on tour. And again, how much power will this ITF player council have? I don't know because it hasn't started yet. But this is another step. It's one of those things where, in theory, it sounds great. It will have to be see how it's in practice and what sort of say that they end up having. But it's certainly a start, and so that's very exciting news to hear. Shout out to the ITF, and again, I think we're going to just keep hearing more and more news along these sorts of things. So be on the lookout for that. That is a story we will continue to monitor here at Cracked Rackets. Uh, What else do we have for you? Some sad news. You know, we continue to talk about the financial impact. Tennis Canada uh, sending about, you know, having to let go or furlough about 70% of its 120 employees. Given that there's not going to be a Rogers Cup likely this year for either the men or the women, that's obviously crushing. You know, we know Mike McIntyre, Ben Lewis of the Tennis Canada podcast, uh, or Tennis Canada, excuse me, Match Point Canada for Tennis Canada podcast. They're part of our Tennis Channel broadcast, uh, our Tennis Channel podcast network, brethren. Uh, our hearts are with them because that sucks. I, I, I have not, you know, that of course we will keep them in our thoughts and we hope they. You know, at some point, Tennis Canada will get back rocking and rolling. We'll be able to bring all of those people back because we never want to see anything like that. You know, from here, uh, so, sort of good news from here on out. That was, I know, that was a sad note, but to keep moving. Um, you know, Courtney Nguyen says the WTA Charities now listed as a charitable entity on Amazon Smile, where customers can select WTA Charities to receive a percentage of their total purchase amount. That is obviously something great for all of us who want to continue to help give back to our communities and, you know, particularly do it in a tennis style. That is something that uh, is very cool to hear. Also cool to hear that the Portuguese Tennis Federation has announced that all facilities under its management, as well as clubs, can open their tennis courts for high-performance players uh, starting this Wednesday. It's the first of five phases mentioned in the plan to get tennis up and running again. Now, there are very strict rules. You know, two players per court, always five meters apart, one coach allowed, always opposite the thermo bags. If possible, new balls for each session. Coach handles the ball and individual balls for serve practice, 30 minutes between session. Again, phase one starts April 22nd. They're hoping for phase two to open courts to the public in May, May, June, allow more than two people. Facilities can reopen June, national events resume. Group sessions allowed. July international events resume. Needless to say, all phases are forecast made by the Portuguese Tennis Federation and may suffer changes depending on the evolution of the coronavirus pandemic. Phase one was detailed this week. Others will come in the following days. All of that comes from Gaspar uh, Ribeiro Lanza, the tennis writer for Racket.com and the Estoril Open social media guy, uh, who has done a great job throughout this, breaking different tidbits of news. So thank you to him. Uh, here, let's end on this. The two coolest things I read this weekend. Let's start with the San Francisco Chronicle. And people who have listened to this podcast know I am a noted and unabashed CeCe Bellis fan. She did the play-by-play call for our club tennis finals when I was a senior in college, and that sort of moment sticks with me. Of course, we've been fortunate enough to have her on the podcast as well. Well, Bruce Jenkins of the San Francisco Chronicle wrote a story about her comeback, how her career was nearly ended by multiple surgeries, how she's healthy now and hoping to resume competition when the tennis uh, world restarts. And 
it's a really good story. It gets into the details of what she experienced, what she was feeling, the doubts she faced, all of these things and more. And, you know, there is a paywall, but go subscribe for journalism. Why not? Especially the good stuff. Uh, and this was a fantastic article. So shout out to uh, Bruce Jenkins and shout out to, again, CeCe Bellis. This piece, uh, Tennis Welcomes Back, uh, uh, back Atherton, CeCe Bellis, and her comeback story. A really good piece. The other one I wanted to plug real quick is uh, Reem Abulail, excuse me, leave it all in, Westoff. Reem Abulail, another fantastic piece for her in the national.ae. She talked about the coaching carousel, and WTA players are changing their team so often. There are daily handouts so the media can keep up. The subtitle, a rapidly changing competitive women's circuit, is reflective in how players are are constantly tinkering to get an edge and look uh she talks about pliskova she talks about osaka she gives so many various uh examples she talks about kiki bladenovich she talks about why it's happening you know the vetting process for all of these players to get coaches she talks to Lindsay davenport dimitri turnsonoff who obviously have both been notable coaches on the wta tour talks about what it takes to find the right fit what the chemistry needs to look like between a player and a coach to find success it's a fantastic piece i'm not going to steal for it you can read this one for free. All you got to do is click on the link. So please go do that. Reem Abulail is one of the best out there. And so I, I always appreciate when she writes something good. And this is another one of those. So go check that out. Finally, and then we'll get to our interview with Tim Russell. Alex Theodora, uh, Theodorus. Uh, Theodoridis. I definitely butchered that pronunciation. I apologize. But he announced that Sweden is going to hold, host a recreational tournament, an exhibition tournament, just to get the tennis world rocking and rolling again. And again, we have seen uh, a couple of different events like this. This is really the first one with multiple people. And the tournament's planning to start for the 1st of May. They've got the ATP world number 558, Jonathan uh, Reedha. They've got Simon Freund. They've got Simon Yitbarik, uh Lord Harry Vendelkin, Linus Carlson, Halden, Leo Borg, and Raphael Yimmer all signed up for the event. I think a couple of more to come, or at least one more to come as well. I think we all miss competitive tennis. We miss live stuff. So shout out to Alex for his hard work. That's an awesome event. And I know so many people uh, in the tennis world are trying to get similar things going elsewhere. So it's, again, you know, we're still far away from the tours coming back, but there are bits and pieces of tennis resuming. And that is a relief for all of us who miss the sport so dearly. But that's today's news. I know that was, again, a hefty bunch. That's when there are so many storylines to monitor. That's what we're going to continue to do here at Cracked Rackets. Uh, but, of course, we also wanted to provide you guys an interview because, as I mentioned, college tennis so near and dear to our hearts, and no one can give you a better update than the ITA CEO, Tim Russell, who we had a conversation with. Let's play that all for you now. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. 
Joining us on the podcast today, a guy who unfortunately is joining us under circumstances that are less than ideal, but nevertheless someone we have still so excited to bring on our Cracked Rackets podcast. You, of course, know him as the CEO of the ITA, Tim Russell. Welcome to the Cracked Interviews podcast. How are you holding up? Hey, it's a great uh, pleasure to be with you, and as we know, uh, athletes like challenges, and uh, leaders are measured in times of uh, of, of stress and challenge. So uh, we're moving forward. Great to be with you. Oh, it is absolutely our pleasure. And let me just start out by saying there is no one I trust more to be uh, in charge of a sport I hold so near and dear like college tennis than you. And, you know, I um, we had the chance to obviously chat a little bit and hang out at the National Indoors. But obviously, since then, so much has transpired. And the, you know, the main purpose I wanted to have you on the podcast today is uh, you wrote a response to Dr. Stephen Dittmore's article that said more universities may need to eliminate sports, and that would be bad for the USOPC, but should it matter? And you wrote this eloquent, passionate response that all of our listeners can go find on wearecollegetennis.com. The response is called the ITA CEO, Tim Russell, responds to athletic director you. And let's just get right into it. Why was this article something that you felt passionate enough about to craft a response to? So a great question. Uh, Right now, given Uh, what the COVID-19 emergency has done to higher education. There are clearly a lot of moving parts, and one of them is how athletic departments and conferences are looking at budgets. And uh, Dr. Dittmore wrote what was, you know, one position, which was, hey, uh, this is a time when people might need to cut sports, and hey, tennis could be one of them. So I wanted to write a number of things. One, I wanted to you know, clearly demonstrate leadership on behalf of our sport and certainly our coaches, but even in a wider uh, argument, wanted to talk about all of the uh, Olympic sports. Uh, for example, it's not just even Dr. Dittmore's article. Those of you who are following college athletics uh, know, for example, that the group of five commissioners have actually put forward a proposal to the NCAA which might actually allow Division I sports to sponsor fewer sports. Thus, you know, we could be to the point where we are looking at, at cut sports. So it wasn't just Dr. Dittmore. It's actually uh, conference commissioners. It's ADs. And I felt that it was important to not only say that all Olympic sports have value on college campuses, but in particular tennis. So I tried to lay out kind of the value proposition for, for tennis and the health of our sport. Yeah, and let me just say, any time an article gets into Latin derivatives, you have my attention, and obviously that's something you do a little bit of in your piece, but you know, you, you lay out, you know, the four purposes of your response, you know, to offer voice of reason and some historical and philosophical perspective to reaffirm the role of athletics in higher education, how you think non-revenue sports can be a part of the solution. And then in particular, you speak to the strengths of college tennis as a leader. But even before you get into your argument for uh, the role of, uh, well, again, I'm using this pejoratively non-revenue sports, you reject. Dr. Dittmore's premise that this, in this time of crisis, the immediate response is to cut sports and to save face financially, and you sort of you know refer to it as a simplistic and extreme argument. And I'm curious, you know, right away, why do you reject that premise? Well, because I don't think over time, 
And I'm somebody who believes that success happens over the long haul. I don't think that making extreme decisions in moments of stress uh, that you're usually going to get the best decisions. And I also think that if you step back, uh, I've been arguing for a number of years uh, that the basic model of much of the Power Five sports is just broken. Uh, you know, and, and I reference eight and nine million dollar football head coaching salaries and two million dollars for an assistant football coach. So what, what ultimately happens is people make uh, decisions that might appear to solve a short-term problem, mm -hmm. but they ultimately cause, I think, long-term long realities that we don't want to, you know, to live in. I understand that people have budget problems, but I also understand that, you know, the best decisions are made when they're, when they're thoughtful. And I've been on a lot of calls recently uh, with college uh, presidents and, and ADs. I'll be out with the conference commissioner today and it's not just me who's rejecting this argument. I mean, if you follow things like the D1 ticker on a daily basis, other ADs are coming out and saying cutting sports is not on the table. Uh, so I was trying to kind of intersect the general argument with the kind of specific one. But to be clear, we've already had the St. Edwards University down in Austin, Texas, a top D2 school actually cut six sports all in one fell swoop without any advance notice to any of the coaches or or teams so you know i think my article was timely i mean it's really happening because people are having to make decisions and tough ones in, in real time right now is well and i know this gets sort of away from your response but you talk about the real-time nature of it it does feel like uh in particular because college athletics you know there was no march madness which is a source of so much revenue because college football it, uh, is their season is threatened as well that the financial burdens for college athletics in general uh are you know they're they're certainly larger than they've ever been before and it does feel like the you know normal model of college athletics as you mentioned or at least the model that had been building is under threat and you know you sort of talk about at the beginning of your argument why you disagree or why you know fundamentally i suppose college athletics the purpose is not to make money for the ncaa the purpose is not to uh, produce olympic athletes for the united states you talk about a more holistic approach uh, of for the reasoning behind college athletics can you sort of explain that reasoning to our listeners now yeah sure and and and, and you're doing a great job of so summarizing what I tried to put forward, I really do want to just encourage people to read the entire argument. But, you know, I basically was a college professor before I ran the, the ITA, and I believe in, you know, what education is about. And as I write way back to the Greeks, it was about intersecting, you know, body, mind, and soul. And uh, the reality is for a lot of people, college athletics has become commercial commercialized. There was even one AD who... Dr. Dittmore doesn't quote who it was, but they basically argued that, hey, we're in the entertainment business. And I just reject that as, a, as an argument. I mean, there's a number of things that college sports do. They, you know, develop championship human beings on and off the court. They also bring communities together. It's not just about, uh, you know, money. Uh, and one of the things that I, I'm suggesting here is that I don't want to just be Pollyanna. I mean, there will be fundamental changes to even what we think of as college. I mean, what they're demonstrating right now is 
you know, how much online education is happening. But I do believe that one of the things that sports do is they bring communities together. And one of the things that I think tennis does is demonstrate how things we like we can use, you know, campus facilities, uh, you know, to have community tennis programs. We are going to have to have tennis think about offering solutions and not just, uh, you know, saying, oh, we'll wait through this crisis. We've been through past ones. We have some of our IPA coaches who are going, oh, everything will be fine. And one of my messages wasn't just to support college tennis, but it was to send a message to our coaches that I believe things are going to be different moving forward. And uh, when you talk to the different ADs, yeah, they can cut some little money by cutting travel or making more play regional or what have you. But uh, I do I do think that this particular situation is going to cause college presidents and ADs to rethink uh, what their models are. I mean, I think everybody needs to recognize there's several different models. Some schools literally only have 16 sports. I'm talking about top programs, whereas I think Stanford might have 36 sports. And in the D3 world, I'm less worried there because mostly D3 understands the Olympic model and participation. But at the highest levels of D1 sports, it's gotten to where college football and basketball have been in a nuclear you know, arms race. But the premise of your question was back to trying to remind everybody that athletics has been part of education way back uh, in, in the Greek time. No, again, I was going to say perhaps more than anything you mentioned at the top that you are a former college professor. That becomes more and more clear uh, the further you read on in your argument because it, it's so well uh, stated. If you, again, if you don't mind me saying, um, one of the, the a couple of the numbers that stood out to me, uh, you know, yes, it's six point three billion in expenses for non-revenue sports, but you talk about uh, or for the Olympic sports, I should suppose, but you talk about the fact that almost five. 100,000 students are receive opportunities to attend college and that, you know, for these students, they generate $12.4 billion in tuitions and fees. And they, that gets back to the financials of the argument. And I know that makes things simplistic, but simply put, money is going to drive so many of these decisions because if the money's not there, you know, these athletic departments don't want to be losing money as a whole. And so I, I suppose my question is, in terms of weighing those opportunities that are given to these student athletes that may not otherwise have existed if not for these other Olympic sports. How do you know, how do you think schools should approach that balance between ensuring that all these kids maintain or still get these sorts of opportunities uh, versus, you know, not sinking their athletic departments financially. Isn't there an argument to be made that, yes, you know, these students would be hurt if there weren't athletics available to them, but they would still be trying to go to higher education anyways? The financial part, as you've called it, is there are a lot of people paying tuition and still being on a college team. You know, we, we know that in D1 tennis, men have four and a half scholarships. If there's 12 people on a team, you know, there's still the equivalent of eight people paying, you know, full tuition. I've been on uh, a coalition with all the other executive directors of Olympic sports, and there's some sports that might have 15 people on a team and only three scholarship so a lot of people think about revenue mostly from ticket sales and concessions at football games 
but universities were balancing their budgets can also think of the tuition uh, and fees that come in uh, on that side of the uh, you know equation so that's one thing that I tried to you know point out to people uh, in terms of you know other solutions uh, I do think that even tennis needs to be able to ask are there ways we can help an athletic director you know save money and I'm going to be writing a few thought pieces coming up I mean it could be that we talk about federated models and and we talk about regional models i mean if you study as a historian ncaa sports have not always been for example uh you know competing at, at things like d1 d2 d3 i think i might have this right that yeah, i think even bowling is a federated sport where a d2 school like central missouri could compete against vanderbilt for a national championship and when we have things like universal tennis as a rating there could be you know different models that we you know we look forward to uh, the, the the fact of the matter is i think we all agree that most people don't like change and certainly our coaches don't like change but but things haven't always been like they are you know today there were days where the ncaa tennis championship used to be all individuals and they tallied up points and then you declared a team winner we've now all said that our uh you know dual match uh, spring season is what college tennis is i think people need to be going you know what does the fall look like what does the spring look like uh things haven't always been the way they were and i do think that in moments like this where i did argue to your question that people shouldn't make uh, snap decisions or knee-jerk reactions. I do believe the times of crisis are the times when people really need to think about, you know, the future. And I also think that the sports that help become part of the solution are really going to be uh, positioned even better. So I'm really trying to get the ITA and our college coaches to demonstrate leadership within the uh, larger intercollegiate athletic space. Yeah, and I if again, I think programs like Tennis for America, which you guys launched this season, speak to exactly what college tennis is trying to do, not just for the sport of tennis, but for all of these various college communities, the idea of giving back. And you also talk about for how so many of these college athletes, even if they don't go on to play professionally, uh, you know, tennis is a lifetime sport and they will have opportunities to compete recreationally. Also, there are those who go on to professional careers. There are so many who go into coaching as well. So in terms of the purpose of college, if it's not only to be you know, the holistic experience, you go into the three parts and one of them is training you for, you know, training you for the professional world. Uh, College tennis certainly plays that role as well. But there was also, I I suppose, one of the arguments made uh, in particular by uh, Dr. Dittmore goes back to uh, utilizing college athletics to facilitate Olympic preparation. And I, I think you talk about how, was it two years ago, maybe a year ago, where uh, the NCAA and the Olympic committees voted on a rule to deem sp- uh, specific athletes elite so that they could have additional training time. And, you know, he goes into his argument that I think it was something like tennis only produced 18% of the uh, U.S. Olympic athletes in the last summer Olympics. Although I would point out two of those athletes, Rajiv Ram and Steve Johnson both went on to win medals at that. So, you know, great job by college tennis once again. But, you know, fundamentally. 
particular, but thank you for giving them a shout out. No, of course, you know, anytime to shout out Stevie and Rajiv, both Crack Rackets podcast participants in the past, got to do my job as well. Um, but, you know, uh, this idea, again, that a college, that college sports it should serve just, uh, you know, some sort of vocational purpose that if these athletes who aren't playing football or basketball aren't going on to play professionally, what's the point of having the sport? And I know this gets back to a question I asked earlier, but I feel like, I, you know, I agree with you when I say that's just a fundamentally flawed argument. Can you sort of explain why you think that as well? You've done a great job of doing it, uh, <laughs> Uh, and you, you do a great job in general, but let me go back to also, you know, my article was quite long and there were some other points I wanted to make, even to your point about vocational training. I mean, you know, aside from playing on the pro tours of the, you know, the WTA or the ATP tour, I mean, the whole tennis industry is getting to the point where there's a lot of uh, aging tennis professionals. So, I mean, whether people want to work in the tennis industry as a club professional or or other parts. I mean, tennis provides that uh, uh, as well. But I, I think your question to me is, again, one that we could spend a lot of time talking about, but there's different paths to getting to be a pro tennis player. And, you know, the nature of the Olympics, if we really wanted to go to the basis of his argument, originally the Olympics were all amateur athletes. Mm-hmm. You know, the basic argument would have been that if that was still the case, more college players would actually be you know, Olympic uh, stars, but I mean, the fact that, and it's not just tennis, whether it's hockey or whatever, but if Roger Federer is in the Olympics, you know, there's not going to be quite as many uh, 18 to 22 year old college tennis players, you know, competing as Olympic athletes. You gave a great example with Stevie, but I mean, a lot of this just has to do with how the Olympics have changed and not just how college has changed. Yeah. No, I think that's completely fair. I am curious because, and perhaps less so again when this gets to Olympics, but just proportionally uh, because there are men's tennis programs and there are also women's uh, tennis programs, but there are laws in America such as Title IX that, you know, you can't be spending more money on male athletic programs than female athletic programs. And, you know, I I think I speak, can say that we're all in favor of Title IX, but do you see there being a scenario where, you know, schools decide to cut programs and it's men's tennis more so that women's tennis that sees, you know, their programs being cut? I think historically that has happened. And I can intersect uh, this answer with another one that you asked about, which is when you reference Tennis for America, clearly all of our programs, men's and women's, the best advice is to become so... Uh, embedded on your campus and in your community that nobody would ever want to cut a a tennis program. So that's one answer. But in terms of Title IX, I think that's clearly an option. And the thing that, you know, makes it such an ironic point is here we've got, you know, the great tennis icon, Billie Jean King, who's done so much not only for women's sports, but just sports and humanity in general. You know, Billie, I'm sure, is not happy when men's tennis teams are programmed are, are, are cut and the argument is, is, is title nine. I mean, Billy wants everybody to be able, you know, to play tennis, but you have rightfully pointed out that there are title nine guidelines, you know, and I think thinking about things like title nine should enter into the calculus that all of us are going to think about right now, as I'm arguing that we should be, uh, 
you know, part of the solution and, and suggesting new models and, and giving uh, ADs and college presidents a reason to keep tennis. I mean, if you start walking down the path of what would college tennis look like if you only had to have 12 or 14 sports, tennis coaches need to ask a question. Um, would college tennis be in that mix? Do we fall in the top 12 or 14? You know, you start going, okay, football, men's basketball, women's basketball, softball, baseball. You know, you see the drill. That was kind of what Dr. Titmore argued, but our coaches need to be able to answer the question, do we fall in the top 12? And we should. No, you, again, you're number one in my heart, obviously. Um, but I, I am curious because it's not just, you know, tennis, right? There's sports like wrestling and rowing, and you can go on lacrosse, and even soccer we've seen uh, under uh, under attack might be the wrong word, but certainly threatened by this existence, really everything outside of football and basketball. I'm curious, as, you know, your role is CEO of the ITA, which is the Intercollegiate Tennis Association, but have you been collaborating with your equivalents across other sports to try and come up with a joint solution, um, a long non-revenue, because you talk about a more sustained financial model for, uh, again, pejoratively non-revenue sports moving forward. And at, you don't exactly get into specifics into the article, but I'm curious if there, you talk about these long-term goals, and I'm sure you have plans and you've modeled things out, but has there been collaboration amongst the many non-revenue sports that could be potentially threatened by this? question and the answer is yes and a very strong affirmative yes there's actually a group now that's called ICAC just to add more letters to the alphabet soup of intercollegiate athletics so this is uh, intercollegiate coaches association coalition so I've been on three calls in the past week and this is with my counterparts everything from women's rowing and uh, men's and women's lacrosse and volleyball and soccer and softball and golf and lacrosse, you name it. And we actually have a coalition and we're actually working uh, together. In fact, this week there's a, 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 a big social media campaign that's actually being launched by this coalition that you'll be able to see where we're calling on the NCAA to reject the group of five commissioners' request to uh, decrease the number of sponsored sports so uh, it's clearly not tennis out there uh, alone we uh, are there with all of our sisters and brothers men's and women's sports uh, uh, and so you've asked a great and important question and you should know we are working together and working in a strong affirmative way no, that's fantastic to hear, and I know uh, I, I want to be conscious of your time because you're saving the sport I love. I don't want to take up too much of it, get you distracted. I do have just you know a couple of more questions, particularly given that tennis was one of the spring sports that felt the effects of the coronavirus canceling the season, and the spring sport tennis athletes were the ones who were afforded an extra year of eligibility, and it's still unclear whether that extra year is going to apply to any spring sport athlete, regardless of you know whether they were a freshman, sophomore, junior, or if it just applies to the seniors who are given that extra rule. But I am curious with 
players coming back and you know those players being able to receive the same amount of scholarships certainly teams will want to incentivize them to come back by maintaining that level of scholarship uh what have been the discussions around the ita surrounding you know i know different conferences have different rules of how many players might be allowed to travel and obviously there are scholarship limits that teams are allowed to have and those have been waived in the immediate aftermath but you know what will what I, I suppose how has the ITA been approaching that not issue I suppose it's a good issue to have but the fact that there may there may be this class of seniors this extra group that will not only be on rosters but also financially affecting you know these programs well, again uh, while I'm trying to lead college tennis the NCAA didn't really ask my opinion on this one <laughs> And it, it's kind of water over the dam, but uh, I, I was not a fa- I was not in favor of this decision, uh, and I'll briefly tell you why. While I am incredibly sympathetic to all of the seniors, one of the things that sports does is teach people life lessons. What I believe this situation has done is basically create uh, competitive uh, inequities, and one of the basic tenets of sports in the NCAA is competitive. Uh, uh, equity so uh, you know we could go through specific situations and you follow college tennis know this better than anybody but we could walk through the various uh, schools that for example were highly ranked and have you know three seniors and they're going to come back and be strong and some other schools where their uh, departments have decided they're not going to pay for the seniors and then, quite honestly, I think there's an inequity even, let's say, some of the strong schools that have three seniors coming back because they want to compete for a championship. They could have three blue-chip recruits who are coming on who are expecting to play as a, a freshman. I just think the issue was decided a little too quickly. I think everybody wanted to placate students who'd had their seasons canceled, uh, but I was not a fan of it. We've seen everything from the Ivies decide they're not doing it uh, certain schools whether it's wisconsin or whatever uh and i think there's going to be a ripple effect going on for the next couple of years uh because once we get through this year you know they are going to you know start tracking the number of scholarships again so the ita obviously didn't take a position we don't get a position we just deal with the situation as it's been unfolding but personally i was not a fan of the decision and i think it's going to yield some unfortunate results, not only in this coming year, but for the next two or three to come. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, to quote you, it was, you know, these knee-jerk uh, reactions as a clever way of uh, doing things in there, avoiding, you know, you're trying to avoid the simplistic options. You need to have a long-term vision as well. And yes, I, I agree with you. The The motives behind the NCAA's ruling were certainly commendable, um, but the logistics of it continue to be, you know, did cause more difficulties, and it's something that everyone is going to have to deal with moving forward. All right, last set of questions for you because I know you didn't address it extensively in this piece, but you wrote in the piece that it's something you plan to address more moving forward, is the international nature of college tennis. And this is an argument that existed, obviously, before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, You know, the idea that I I think 
you know college tennis as a whole and you you sort of write about how by density uh it you know it's not the the most international athletes but by percentage college tennis does have the most international participants at least at the division one and division two levels than any more than any other sport but you have made the argument it's an argument that resonates with me uh so so clearly so particularly well that international prospects international players is an essential feature of college tennis not just because you want the level of play to be raised by bringing in those sorts of international talents but because of the international nature of the sport the international community that is tennis it's a global sport one of if not the most popular across the globe and there will certainly be calls to say well if a sport's not preferencing American athletes, why should tax dollars continue to go there, particularly in a time of financial crisis? You know, that's a simplistic version of stating the argument, but why do you believe it's important for college tennis to maintain the international presence within the sport? First of all, I would love to have the opportunity to come back for a different podcast to talk for half an hour about this. (laughs) Agreed. It's really important, and I do have to pretty soon hop off to get on another call to help save college tennis. But, you know, you, you just gave a great summary of the arguments. I, I will uh, try to summarize a couple of things. Uh, one, I have said that I'm a big fan of, you know, the global nature of college tennis and it's a strength and not a weakness. But I've also said to be clear to our, our coaches that, a lack of Americans in college tennis over time could be an existential threat. And the fundamental argument that I didn't articulate in the response to Dr. Dittmore uh, is that, quite honestly, it's a calculus in terms of flat out the number of scholarships that are available and the number of American juniors. So one, one way to state the case is that this is not an international player, quote, problem, that's in the eyes of some who see it as a problem. I don't. But in, in some respects, it's it's an American junior problem. Uh, I've got a chart which I can share, and I'm writing this article which I reference that points out how many scholarships we have, how many American juniors uh, that are played. But quite honestly, a lot of the whole issue is related to scholarships too, which I just alluded to tangentially in my article. I mean, D3 tennis only has 3% international players, and the Patriot League, which does not give scholarships, only has 3%. If, for example, college tennis didn't have scholarships at the D1 level, there would not be this many international players. So if it's okay with you, let's reschedule another time and walk through all of the details of this really important argument. But uh, for now, I just want to thank you not only for having me and and for all you do for college tennis but thanks for uh, inviting me today and i'll let you commit to inviting me back so we can continue the international player discussion no i like i said uh, any excuse to get out of an interview that involves your saving college tennis that works for me last quick one and then please hang up but you go to dave mullins and said dave i have 3500 words of response it's his first reaction 3500 words he's like are you serious (laughs) <laughs> the, the reality is even the athletic director you published it shorter one of the things people say about me is 
for, for, for a long time, you've talked to my wife. When in doubt, I've tried to explain things in more words than fewer, and I probably need to get better at making the arguments uh, shorter. But I really can tell you when we looked at uh, the, uh, the dashboard for the ITA's website, we had a bunch of people who've read the article and a bunch of people who've read the whole thing. So we've actually been able to track from the back end the amount of time people have spent on the site, how many page views. So I think it was actually a, a long article, but one that people uh, really took interest in. So hopefully we'll be able to continue these conversations going forward. Yeah, no, it's something you and I have in common. 2,500 turns into 3,500 very quickly. But, you know, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for all you do for college tennis. And yes, as you mentioned, you are always welcome back on this podcast. So just let me know when you've got some free time. All right. Thanks to you. Yeah. Have a great day. Of course. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with ITA CEO Tim Russell. It is so clear that all of the issues facing uh, college tennis are on the top of Tim's mind always, not only in moments of crisis, but clearly he always is thinking of different ways to improve our beloved sport of college tennis to best prepare it for a successful future run. And so always grateful for Tim for taking the time to chat. And hopefully as more news continues to come out from the college tennis world, as he mentioned in the interview, we'll get the chance to talk to him again because college tennis is a fluid, ever-evolving sport, and there are a lot of different moves pieces and no one knows the intricacies of the game better than the IPA CEO and it's always just a pleasure to get to chat with him so big thank you to Tim for taking the time to talk uh, we really appreciate all of you taking the time to continue to listen to these mini break podcasts of course there's so much news going on day in day out we try to keep you guys up to date on all the biggest storylines uh, that are going on right now in the game but of course we are also continuing to roll on our other podcasts we are taking these moments to look back in time, talk about some of tennis's best matches in our series CR Classics. We've released our first two episodes. The first one, the French Open 2011 men's semifinal, where Federer knocks off an undefeated Djokovic. The latest one, the 2001 Wimbledon semifinal. Semifinals seem to be the theme thus far. I also just recorded another semifinal last night with Ben Rothenberg uh, on Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova's 05 Australian Open match. That one will come out in the near future, but you know, that second one, the 0-1 Rafter uh, Andre Agassi matchup, you can find both the, the French Open and uh, Wimbledon matchups CR Classics that we did in podcast form on the Great Shot podcast feed. Even better, you can find them in video form on our YouTube channel. Search at Crack Rackets, search CR Classics. You'll find the videos we're talking about. Super producer Daniel Westhoff weaving in so many cool video clips, links of the points we're talking about. You get to see the highlights you get to see our smiling faces and so much more so be sure to go check all of that out on the youtube channel you also don't want to miss Overserved. our look at all of the comedy that happens week in week out on tour so be sure to go just subscribe to that youtube channel so you don't miss any of our content moving forward uh, in terms of the cracked interviews podcast we're still talking to tennis players from various different eras we've talked recently to people like chris woodruff amy frazier for those of you that are 90s tennis fans we've also of course talked 
talked to guys like Dennis Kudla, Mitchell Kruger. We've talked to Claire Liu and Christian as well, Bethany Maddox, Sands, so much more. Uh, we've got, I think, the Tommy Robredo pod just came out. I've never interviewed a top five ATP player on the podcast before. I or Maybe I have. At this point, it's hard to keep track, but you know that was obviously a fascinating conversation, so be sure to check that out and be on the lookout for more entertaining podcasts as well so that you don't miss any of them. Like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot podcast, uh, the Crack the Interviews podcast. Share them with your friends. And of course, if you've missed any of them, you can go find the links to all the podcasts, not only wherever you listen to them, but also on our website, crackedrackets.com. You know, follow us. Feel free to comment to us. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at Cracked Rackets. You want to reach out to me in particular, it's at Great Shot Pod. We always appreciate when we hear from you fans and what you guys are up to because we do this for you. We want to make sure you guys are thoroughly entertained and maintain to feel, uh, you know, a presence, a part of the tennis community, even in these times of crisis. The people who I turn to in a time of crisis are super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a been editing job to do and every single day continue to make me sound far more competent than I actually am. So shout out to them. Shout out to our friends at Diadem Sports as well. You use that promo code CR50. You can get 50% off all of your tennis gear needs. Just go to their website again, diadimsports.com. Shout out also to our friends at Aerobar. You go to their website. You use the promo code CRACK30, 30% off all of your tennis energy bar needs. But with that being said, for our super producers, Max Flingner and Daniel Westoff, and from all of us here at, oh, I should also say for our lovely guest, Tim Russell, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.